Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fearless Paranoia podcast, where we are demystifying the world of cybersecurity to make sure that it's understandable to both technical and non-technical people alike. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan. I'm a cybersecurity architect. And today we're going to jump into one of our favorite areas to explore, which is how major corporations with massive security budgets, with armies of IT professionals and cybersecurity experts and lobbyists to make sure that everything that they do is retroactively declared as legal and permissible, manage to still get themselves hacked. There's an interesting thing that happens when nation states decide to leave their lane. You kind of expect it when one country tries to hack the government and even, as bad as it sounds, the infrastructure of another country. That seems sort of like what spies do, right? Well, one of the things we've learned when it comes to hacking, and I think we probably have the Chinese and North Korean governments most largely to thank for this, historically speaking. Wow, foreign governments also really like hacking companies. And you can kind of see why, I guess, especially if you're North Korea and someone has just made a movie about your president where they basically mock him incessantly, you're going to spend your country's resources to hack into that movie studio and release all of their pending scripts, you know, like you do, right? Isn't that something you'd do if you were a leader of a country who was mercilessly attacked by the likes of Seth Rogen? I'm just going to say no for the sake of, no, uh, yeah, no, uh, it, it's, it's absolutely what, what did happen and it is not at all surprising or unexpected, especially coming out of a state like North Korea. Again, China being a little different, they've got some kind of clear motives. Yeah, they tend to go after like IP and stuff like that. Yeah, right? well, I mean, things that are really beneficial to them, right? Whereas North Korea, what's beneficial to them is whatever keeps the supreme leader unbesmirched in power and clean of image. So that means kicking Seth Rogen in between the legs, then uh, so be it, I guess. That's where they put their efforts. And <laughs> Well, we've got two interesting ones to talk about today. We're going to talk about two different attacks, and we're going to kind of talk about why these attacks are important in the specific context where they occur. Heard, but also how they provide us some interesting lessons. Any bad experience retrospectively should provide a lesson. It's why I don't ever trust anyone who claims that they have no regrets. If you don't regret something, that means you've never done something that was bad enough to make you realize, hey, I'm not going to do that again. You could say, oh, well, I learned something. That's why I don't have regrets. No, you regret it. That's how you learn something. So we're going to learn something from these particular breaches, but they're also very notable just for what happened within them. So let's start off right with the first one. Ryan, we recently learned that several representatives of Microsoft had some unfriendly people in their email. Yeah, this is kind of starting to sound kind of like a recurring theme here, right? So the actor in this particular case was positively identified. They go by, in Microsoft sphere, as Midnight Blizzard, a much less well-known name, more commonly known over previous years. The same group has gone, gone by names like like Nobelium, Cozy Bear, APT29, etc. And some of those names are much more familiar because you can tie them back to attacks like Solar Winds. Very heavily tied to the Russian intelligence services and they did get a hold of Microsoft. They were initially detected on January 12th of this year, and that's an important date to remember because the actual activity started in November of 2023. So we're talking uh, somewhere in between a month and a half to two months, potentially worth of lag time in between when the actual attack started and when the activity was identified and mitigation started. For a company as large as Microsoft that, again, as you stated, already has uh, huge amounts of resources both capital and people and systems and logging and data and tools and all
all these different things. To have an actor this sophisticated go unnoticed for this length of time just shows that these threat actors are getting to be immensely sophisticated. They're getting to be really good at laying low, at being quiet. The Russian groups are not typically well known for being very quiet, but in this case, you know, it went unnoticed for quite a while, which is a worthy point of note. This started with a really simple attack. This was a password spray against some Microsoft legacy non-production test systems, or a legacy non-production test tenant is, I guess, the official term that was kind of identified there. What does that mean? So let's break that down. So legacy means old, right? Either old or unused or uh, no longer in service, potentially, etc. Non-production test. Well, hold on. Back up to legacy. Because there's one thing that I think is something that is a lesson that we can get from a lot of these. And one of the biggest things that I think when I think of legacy is no longer supported. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, that's accurate, which also could mean too, uh, legacy means potentially not updated, not patched, not current, mm-hmm. not using current technologies, etc. Matter of fact, one of the big things Microsoft recommends just to reuse the word legacy is one of the common conditional access pieces that they recommend everybody put in place right now is a conditional access rule in their system that blocks legacy authentication, which is the old username password for things like SMTP connections or those types of basic non-MFA style connections, things of that nature. So things that may exist in your system that were used and maybe even state of the art when they were used, but even though they are no longer used and they're no longer the standard, they may still exist in your system. Sure. And in some cases, people that run old software, old systems or legacy systems potentially still are kind of beholden to these legacy methods of security, legacy authentication protocols and legacy methods, people still using stuff like TLS 1.0, 1.1, things that have been long since deprecated. If a system is old and it's no longer maintained, but it's still currently in some sort of production use, uh, you really don't have a lot of options other than using some of those methods. You have to apply other layers and other things to kind of add hurdles in front of those bad methods. And uh, there's other ways to kind of secure those systems, but in some cases, they're just not as securable any longer. So in this case, this was a Mm. legacy tenant. The non-production test tenant. What's the next step past legacy? So non-production test tenant. So obviously non-production means this wasn't being used for production level systems, right? This was a test tenant that was set up. Tenant is just kind of the an organizational unit in the Microsoft space. So a tenant is basically an account where a variety of services and identities, etc., sit. So everybody that is like an Office 365 member company, you have a tenant that you use. Your tenant houses your identity. It houses the majority of the services that you get through Office 365 or Microsoft 365. Each customer will get their own tenant. In certain companies, some companies have multiple tenants, especially let's say if you're a development company, you might have a production tenant, you might have a test tenant, a QA tenant, etc. And those are all for segregation so that you can have not all that stuff sitting in one place, right? So you can do your testing and your development work and things away from your production, your core systems to avoid that overlap, to break privilege control and access and to just reduce blast radius, reduce attack service, etc. So in this case, they had this test tenant account sitting out there. It sounds like it was no longer probably in use or if it was still in use, it just wasn't being actively monitored, supported, and certainly wasn't up to best practice standards because a password spray was able to gain access to this tenant. And password spray is basically what it sounds like, right? A password spray is exactly kind of what it sounds like. We covered it in some previous episodes pretty lightly, but like a password spray is you either have a set of account names and a set of potentially known passwords, 
or you just have a password list and you just spray those passwords at these different systems, different accounts, especially if any of them have been part of a breach before. You see a lot of credential stuffing attack, which is effectively a style of password spray where they are attempting to brute force more or less an account by just throwing things at it. So in this case, they were able to get access to the Microsoft test tenant. And inside that test tenant, there were actually applications set up, enterprise level applications using OAuth, an authentication protocol. And in some cases can be used between systems. And they were able to find and abuse a test OAuth application that actually had privileged access into production Microsoft systems. So this is where the first, what I will just very, you know, using very highly technical terms, the first no-no occurred. <laughs> we have a test tenant that had production level access, and that's, it kind of defeats the purpose of having that segregation there in the first place, right? Why would you have a test tenant and not just have it accessing test services or, you know, dummy data or something to that effect? Because it allows for this exact kind of system or tenant transversal. It allows you to elevate use of this account or this app applications privileges in another area. And in this case, they were able to use it to actually access Exchange Online in the production Microsoft environment. And You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. I want to read a note from Microsoft when they were announcing this breach. Beginning in late November 2023, the threat actor used a password spray attack to compromise a legacy non-production test tenant account and gain a foothold, and then used the account's permissions to access a very small percentage of Microsoft corporate email accounts, including members of our senior leadership team and employees in our cybersecurity, legal, and other functions, and exfiltrated some emails and attached documents. Okay, that's the quote. I'm also going to follow that up with a quote from security researcher and, quite frankly, absolutely brilliant technologist, Bruce Schneier, who says, this is nutty. How does a legacy non-production test tenant account have access to executive emails? I got nothing, Ryan. What? That, what? <laughs> that nutty is the best way to describe that. So that's exactly the point I was making is if you are setting up a test tenant for the purpose of testing some sort of application or some sort of connection or some sort of anything, you're testing something. You test it against test data. You test it against dummy data. You produce fake data to test it against. You do not hook that stuff up to your production systems because of this exact same reason. And this is purely me taking a shot in the dark and guessing here, but if they only access that small number of accounts, I would be willing to bet that the permissions were there to have accessed a much broader range of accounts. I would hope so, because otherwise, I'm just imagining the room of people sitting together trying to determine what data should be tested here. Say, well, we could use a batch of just sample test data, or we could use email accounts for random low-level personnel, or we could use the email accounts of our executives. Yeah. No, I think we'll go with the executives. Yeah, I mean, why, why not, right? Like, that just, that seems like an actual, like, every time I test something at work, the first thing I do is I target the C-suites, personal email accounts, and one, yeah. one drives, and all those types of things. Um, I never found anywhere yet to this point where it was widely documented about what level of true access that application had. But my guess is that, and again, we're kind of entering a space of guessing here at this point, but they were able to access some very specific people and specific areas 
that were of benefit to them. And we'll talk about in a second what the threat actor was actually looking for. But I'm pretty sure that the attack was targeted only because they were trying to stay off the radar. Because as soon as you do something like a broad attack, like let's just access all the mailboxes, you immediately start kicking up red flags, right? And that's not a good way to stay quiet. That's a good way to get your system access cut and get kicked out of a system when you just started gaining a foothold. Is it possible also that they were just really surprised of how much access they got and they didn't actually have the wherewithal to do anything other than feed their own venality? Well, so let's get into that point real quick then. So let's just, let's finish painting the picture. So Midnight Blizzard, Nobelium, whoever, Cozy Bear, whatever you want to call them. The thing that they tried to access from all of these different accounts that they got access to was information about them and their activities. They were looking to find out what Microsoft knew about them. And that's what they chose to use this access for. We should note Microsoft is heavily involved in tracking all of these hacking groups. So they probably had quite a lot. Yeah, they gave them one of their really cool names. They call them Midnight Blizzard. And, you know, not every hacking group gets a sweet name from Microsoft. So, like, they were very much a top-tier focus of Microsoft. But whether, and again, we're not going to be able to, like, reach out to somebody at Nobelium and go, hey, what is it that you guys were looking for? And, like, get, you know, get them, like, on the podcast for the next week or something to, like, figure it out. But, like, when it comes down to it in the end, they were either being vain and they were looking for information about them because they wanted to know what Microsoft knew, maybe find out if there was any particular techniques that they were after so they could adjust some of their methods, find ways around some of the other challenging points or footholds that they were running, you know. It- or to potentially gain information that could be used against Microsoft later on. Let's not forget they did exfiltrate email yep. from some pretty high up people. Now, again, though, the people that they targeted were people that would have very specific, very targeted information mm-hmm. on them in particular. Now, they could have just gone in again, potentially, and ransacked the whole exchange kit and caboodle and then just dug through the stuff later. Mm-hmm. They're no set of dummies. They know mm-hmm. very well that when you start to make big, bold moves like that, you start to trigger intrusion detection and you start to trigger alerting and things. But now they figured if instead of going in with the shotgun, they go in with the scalpel. If they just really quietly start to kind of grab information from a few key spots, maybe they can just start pulling this stuff and actually do some exfiltration and get some proper intel and things before they finally get caught. And in this case here, again, this occurred in November 2023. The detection was made in January of 2024. So depending on when in November, we're looking at, again, potentially a month and a half to two and a half months of time sitting in that system, which would give them plenty of time to selectively choose targets, selectively choose what data they were going after and really just kind of pick and pry the pieces out that they want to try and not trigger any alerts until they at least got a hold of the couple small pieces of treasure that they were really looking for. And that's the real big takeaway here, I believe. Let's move on to what we can gain from this. What lessons do you find in this particular breach, this hacking incident? Well, so we were going to start today with kind of a couple different topics. Today with the Microsoft one, it's going to be things that you shouldn't do. And the couple things that they shouldn't do, or in some cases, I guess should do, what they should do is follow some of their own best practices, some of their own documented advice and things. And they didn't in this particular case. First of all, they allowed a test tenant, what should be a very segregated, sectioned off piece of their infrastructure to have access to major production systems. That's obviously something that you should never do. There should be full segregation between those systems, especially at the access layer and the data layers. Another thing that they did that they shouldn't do is 
leave legacy systems out there unprotected using legacy methods of authentication that are susceptible to things like password sprays. Microsoft MFA at all of their production systems. It's been almost a couple of years now at this point. And so yeah, just having a password should not have been sufficient to get in. Should not, especially for an account that potentially is being used for internal test and dev activities and that has OAuth access into production systems. And not just the production systems, but production systems that then allow access into the email accounts of Mm -hmm. the people who have information on a nation state sponsored hacking group. And that's why I think likely what it was is it probably was an OAuth app that probably had access over Microsoft's internal exchange online environment for their corporate email. So there's a high likelihood that that OAuth app maybe had access to all of their email accounts. It could mm-hmm. have, in effect, had Exchange Admin. Again, that I've never found a spot where that was fully documented. But to me, if you were able to go in and snipe out specific C-suite, specific legal, specific cybersec professionals, chances are nobody set up a test app that was probably just tied to those super high-level accounts only, unless they were using it to exfiltrate in the first place. I was going to say, that would almost raise more questions. Exactly. So if they set that up in the first place, chances are it just had broad Exchange access and that was the problem they were able to identify that oh hey we can access anything we want here let's choose really selectively the things that we want to get from this so whether their intent in the first place was to dig up info on themselves or whether the intent was just to see what they could get into and then they figured that piece out later i'm not sure but i think i will say really quick too i think this is a missed opportunity on nobelium's part too because they probably could have dug Mm -hmm. into a lot of really interesting information and it sounds like the majority of what they spent their time on was digging info on themselves which again i don't i'm not going to be one to try and judge their motives but that is what they were after and they were successful and that's a very key point there is that they were able to accomplish what they were after yeah so a lot of things that microsoft didn't do very well in that particular circumstance and they are one of those companies that obviously they are so huge that you have to imagine these things can slip past but also they're the people who are the experts in making sure that nothing slips past they really did make a lot of mistakes. There's a lot to really talk about and kind of break down in that particular hack, but I do want to shift on to the second attack because, Ryan, this was something, as we were talking before, I kind of raised both of these attacks as questionable failures. And you actually said, well, no, Microsoft had a lot of things of, you know, they're operating under the do as I say, not as I do dynamic, which anytime anyone brings up something like that, you know, there's some serious missteps being made. But you said in this particular case that Cloudflare was actually an example of doing a lot of things right and that it not only mitigated problems, but their transparency has, in your mind, made them more credible. So tell us briefly about what happened with Cloudflare and why you think it's such a model or at least a demonstration of things you can do right. So the two big differences to take away here, like, so the Microsoft one was a failure on their own part, right? Like they were, the password spray was against them. It was their own configurations that got them in trouble. In this particular case, and again, to Microsoft's benefit, their response, once they identified the problem, was probably pretty close to equal. They were quick to respond. And so while the response was effective and they did a pretty decent job of communicating after the fact, the fact of the matter is it was still them. They were the leading cause of the problem. So in cloud Cloudflare's case, the actual access that was made to their systems wasn't necessarily due to a major configuration issue that was set forth by them. It was actually a spinoff of the Okta hack that came from last October, and it was a user access token and some stolen service account credentials from that Okta hack that were actually used to breach the system. So again, this was a third-party breach, a third-party leak of data and credentials 
that ultimately caused this. And so again, could you say that Cloudflare could have done things in the interim knowing about that hack to maybe mitigate or prevent some of this? I mean, yes, I think there was some probably some things you could have done, but to fully understand what happened and what would be required would mean you'd have to fully understand what happened at Okta, fully understand what was taken, down to every last detail, have that clearly documented, and then have a clear plan of how to mitigate each and every one of those pieces inside your system. Let me just jump in real quick there. That does... I think what you just described there perfectly illustrates what, as an attorney, this question gets presented to me a lot. There are mistakes and then there is negligence. And a lot of times, you know, people will look back on events that occur with 2020 hindsight and whatever you want to call it, and will look at a mistake that someone or a company made and will then say that that was negligence. Well, the problem with that is that assumes that every mistake is negligence. Yep. Negligence means that you are at fault for the results of something that happened because of your failure to do something. The biggest thing that people need to understand about what the true difference between a mistake and negligence is, is that negligence requires a failure to use reasonable care. Mm -hmm. The failure to do what a reasonable person in that situation at that time and with the same knowledge would do. And I think the point you just made there makes it pretty clear that in your mind at least, without knowing a whole lot more, it's impossible to say that what happened to Cloudflare was actually negligence because it's just not possible to do absolutely everything in response to every outside event impacting any system and to always keep up with it. It's just not, it's not reasonable. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. Possible, potentially, reasonable, not really. To me, you have to bring the concept of intent in, right? So you have to kind of look at what was Cloudflare's intention here to try and deal with what they knew was a bad situation coming out of the Okta hack, right? So they're an Okta customer, which means that they were exposed. They were exposed to the effects of this attack downstream. And Okta being an authentication system is pretty important. Absolutely. It's a major control system, which means that they do control access into a lot of different Cloudflare systems, including things like their source code repository and including their knowledge base, their service desk and ticketing system, uh, and numerous other systems. Well, and I want to jump in real quick and mention also bearing in mind, and this is a bit of foreshadowing for later, one of the things that Okta's tools specialized in was allowing access across different systems within the same company. You'll see why that's important in a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Okta is kind of, and this is going to be a super gross simplification of what Okta does, but I mean, this is, they're an identity provider, but like to most businesses, they are an SSO provider, which means that they provide not just 
control and management of identities, but they provide seamless access into all your different applications from a single set of credentials, which makes the user experience better. If you've got good protections around those credentials and that authentication stream, then it makes potentially security better as a whole across the org, etc. But when that stuff gets compromised, it also means that now you've got the ability to potentially pivot into all those different things from a single point. So in Microsoft's place, if that OAuth app hadn't been there, connecting back into Exchange, that password spray would have probably stopped at that test tenant if that test tenant even was still online but let's say they had gone in and like cleaned up and killed all the apps and everything nobelium would have had access to that test tenant and probably a whole lot of jack inside of there which wouldn't have really done much for them right so it was because of the fact that there was that secondary authentication hop available to them in there to provide that access with okta in this case they had the keys right kind of out of the gate to a variety of different systems at cloudflare now cloudflare did do a lot of mitigation so this is where intent comes in. They they did do a lot of things after the Okta hack that they mentioned to try to mitigate the potential impacts of this, right? They rotated a lot of service accounts, a lot of account credentials, especially the stuff that they were notified of that was potentially impacted and potentially breached. And so again, a company the size of Cloudflare means you have tons of users that have privileged access. You've got tons of service accounts. You've got tons of services, tons of applications. You have a whole lot of things to cover. When they're an IT company, too. So that, that makes it even more important. Right. You've got a lot of ground to cover. So again, in most of these cases, for anyone to kind of come at a large company and say, well, you didn't cover 100% of everything coming out of the Okta breach, so this is negligence on your part. Well, you have to understand what 100% of everything in that type of scenario really means, what it really takes to cover 100%, and what kind of resources and time and effort that would take. And if you compound that, on top of how often breaches are starting to occur nowadays. That's right there. What you just said is a huge key because sure, it might have been reasonable to dedicate specialized staff just to dealing with the Okta breach, but you also have to assume there are plenty of other things that they were already trying to respond to. That's just it. Eventually, it's going back to the quote from Lord of the Rings, it's butter spread over too much bread. You get your cybersecurity, your response teams, your disaster recovery team enacted on every single breach that comes up. Well, when vendors are part of your breach chain, you are starting to deal with a lot of it. And like, we're going to get into one really quick here. One of the major ones that they accessed inside of Cloudflare was their Atlassian stack. Well, if anyone pays attention to breaches, Atlassian has had a bunch of doozies lately. And so it wasn't any of their actual breaches that were used, as far as I understand, to access their systems here because they had credentials to get right into the Atlassian systems. Cloudflare was likely responding to numerous Atlassian breaches as well. So they're going through and updating these different servers and doing audits and things inside of Atlassian systems to see if they were subject to any of those breaches and those known exploits, as well as the Okta one, as well as I'm sure many others. So again, you cover everything that you can. And when you have limited capacity, to some extent, you start with covering the big things, the most impactful things, the highest risk things, and then you start working your way down the list. But eventually that list, as it starts to dwindle in size, gets filled up like a hopper again with whatever the next breach that comes in is, and you have to go through and then reprioritize, right? So now you think, okay, well, we're down to the low criticality, the low risk items that are left over from the Okta breach, but now we have a whole bunch of high risk stuff that came in from like the new Atlassian breach, that stuff all of a sudden gets prioritized higher, right? So now your team is working on 
other things, mitigations elsewhere, and some of those lower level things are just kind of sitting, waiting to be done, right? They enter a backlog mm-hmm. or they enter just kind of that waiting spot because of the fact that, again, it's too much to do, spread over too few people and too limited a capacity. So, but the big thing that Cloudflare really did, and this is something I want to tout them for here, is that they did some stuff really right here. So, yes, they did get breached. Yes, it was some stuff left over from the Okta hack that could potentially have been mitigated somewhere in here. Again, I'm not going to fault them for that. At least, at least without knowing more. What they did really well was how they responded to all of this. And there's been a lot of growing critique in the cybersecurity industry. Again, there's there's a lot of people in our industry that have got really strong opinions about how businesses deal with things. And they vary pretty wildly. My opinion used to be much stronger against a bunch of businesses for not doing the right things. And the more and more that I see what's happening in the world and how fast the threat actors are gaining ground over businesses and blue teams, etc., I've started to kind of back down a little bit. And Getting soft in your old age. Well, but being on blue team myself, (laughs) I'm starting to understand that the game is changing rapidly and security is never really looked at as being a revenue generator. We're always a cost center. And so from that aspect, we have to kind of run lean in a lot of cases. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't always get budgetary approval for all the new things that we need to stay ahead of these games, but the threat actors are getting larger budgets. They're getting more money from breaches. They're willing to reinvest that money. They're willing to use new tactics, even legitimately buying licensed offensive security software and things like that to be able to get the newest, latest, greatest to be able to turn around and use to achieve their goals. And this means that they are rapidly advancing the level of threat that they're putting forth. But realistically, again, here, so Cloudflare, to cover some of the basic details, November 14th of last year was the initial date of the intrusion that they were able to track. The initial intrusion came in through a set of three service accounts that were stolen in Okta's hack in October and a user access token. And they were able to access the self-hosted Atlassian tools at Cloudflare. So Jira and Confluence primarily. And they started doing recon, basic recon to stay quiet and to just kind of see what they could start to find, see what they could get into, etc. They came back a little over a week later, November 22nd, so eight days later, and they started to establish persistence. So this is once they get a chance to do some quick recon, some quick scans, and then just go quiet for a bit. They start to identify what their game plan is going to be. And then they came back and said, okay, we have access to Bitbucket, which is a source code repository through the Atlassian software as well. And they were able to establish persistence through there, which means now they've got access potentially to source code, to knowledge base, and to other service level and ticketing information, et cetera, which all has very vital and critical data sitting inside it about Cloudflare. November 22nd. November 23rd, they were initially detected. So chances are after they started gaining persistence, they started moving around. They probably tripped some sort of intrusion detection system. So it took only a day for Cloudflare to identify that. And of course, Cloudflare's probably got a lot of great tools and great people in place and a lot of modern systems. And so does Microsoft. Sure, absolutely. Well, maybe not in their legacy test, non-production test (laughs) systems, but, you know, certainly Cloudflare did. And then November 24th, they were able to sever their access. So we're talking about 10 days from the initial intrusion to full severed access. That's actually a lot shorter than a lot of the ones that we've been kind of hearing about and talking about. So that's pretty good, right? And then they immediately, within a couple days, had started a full forensics investigation, which started on the 26th of November. So a couple days later, they enacted their disaster recovery incident response teams. And they ran forensics all the way till January 5th is what they said. So we're talking about uh, the very end of November, the very beginning of January and all of December. So maybe a month and a half on kind of the, the high end. 
thousand worth of forensics. During this time, in their incident response, they rotated all their production credentials, upwards of five thousand plus some creds. They added uh, physical segmentation in place for their testing and staging systems to make sure that those were fully uh, separated from one another and to reduce the ability to navigate between those. Well, and even on that particular front, one of the things that they had already done prior to this was to set up such significant amounts of segregation that all of the code repositories they accessed and everything, they didn't actually get any customer data. Mm -hmm. And that's really critically important. I'm going to rattle off the rest of these and then I'll talk about the importance of that too. They did forensics on 4,900 systems. They re-imaged and rebooted all major systems and critical systems on their global network, including the Atlassian systems and other machines that were accessed by the attackers. That's no small effort right there to get through all of that level of response and to do all of that in a month and a half for a company their size. Quite impressive. But yeah, let's talk about the segmentation real quick because that is the big thing that probably saved them a lot of headache and saved them a lot of chaos here. It's part of attack surface reduction, right? So you want to reduce the ability for systems to talk to one another. You want to reduce the ability to laterally move between systems that don't require that lateral movement, right? So like you've got internal use systems like internal confluence and JIRA. There's no reason why those need to touch the customer facing production systems that are controlling customer workflows in Cloudflare. There's just no need for those systems to be able to talk to each other. And so you segment those systems. You segment those whole network areas apart from one another. Same reason like with in Microsoft space, there's no business why production level email should be talking talking to a non-production test system. So you segregate those things. You do not connect access between those. You don't open firewall between them. You don't open identity between them. You don't open access between them. As a matter of fact, if you have to, you go so far as to deny access between those things. You start to break those access layers and prevent access between those systems for that specific reason, because you don't want that transversal to occur. You don't want anything to be able to just kind of breach those different perimeters. In the case that you get like ransomware, something that could be, you know, wormable, something that can spread really quickly across systems. If you've got great segmentation in place, you might get ransomware and you might get hosed in one segment of your infrastructure. If you don't, if you have a flat network and everything's just kind of wide open and everything can talk to itself, well, I mean, it's now your ransomware with little to no effort can spread across the entirety of your systems, which means that instead of a small piece of your business coming down, the whole thing comes down. And that's a big problem. Now, granted, in some cases, there'll be a lot of people that will complain, more operational people about, well, now you're making it tougher for me to access certain things. Well, inconvenience is always a price you pay for security. Yes. And part of that is by design. And it's not because the intent is to reduce the user experience. The intent is to reduce the fallout potential of cybersecurity incidents because the amount of time and effort and cost that goes into the reduced user experience is far less than the amount of time and cost and effort that goes into going into full-on incident and disaster recovery response efforts across the entirety of a network as opposed to a small segment of it. Well, and also I'm going to oversimplify that significantly here, but remembering the old axiom that criminals are fundamentally lazy. And if it's a little bit inconvenient for people who legitimately have access and regularly use a system to get in, but it is considerably more inconvenient for a hacker. And you don't need to outrun the bear. You need to outrun the person next to you. If you make yourself a slightly harder target, you make yourself that much more annoying to attack. Oh, exactly. The same thing like when you go into like a bank and you have safety deposit boxes, there's a reason why all those have different keys because if there was one key to open them all and all you had was like a single person that was just in charge of opening the boxes rather than letting users open their 
their individual boxes. All you got to do at that point is get the one person with the one key, and now you got access to everything. If you have to rely on getting 5,000 different keys to get into 5,000 different boxes, well, if somebody manages to get a hold of one, two, three, five keys, well, now you've lost one, two, three, five boxes worth of contents, but you didn't lose 5,000. And it's a small price to pay for mitigating the potential for a large disaster. And in today's day and age where threat actors are getting more vicious, more capable, stuff like ransomware is becoming more prevalent, it's moving faster, it's getting harder to recover from. These are sacrifices that we are going to have to make in order to protect businesses, protect their systems, protect their intellectual property, protect their ability to recover, to protect their ability to do business. And if you let an entire business go down because the whole network got brought down and you have to restore the whole network to get yourself back up and running, you're talking about days, weeks, months, years before you fully recover from something like that. And that's dollars and cents on the bottom lines. And that's, yeah, again, assuming you can recover. And in some cases of small businesses where stuff like highly detailed segmentation is almost non-existent in most cases, that's why most small businesses, if they suffer a major ransomware, major breach, a lot of times they do not recover because they do Mm -hmm. not, they do not have the general maturity to break those things down. You go into a small business of 10 people, and sometimes all 10 of those people have full admin rights over everything across the whole network, which means now as an attacker, all you have to do is breach one of 10 people and you got everything. If you can break that stuff down, even in a small business, you go a long way to providing resilience for yourself. And that's why it's absolutely mandatory and critical that everybody from small business to large business, et cetera, needs to start adopting general best practices in cybersecurity. Otherwise, it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when you will have to deal with one of these incidents and how much and how long it's going to cost in terms of time, effort, and losses to recover back from it. Yeah, it was noted that one of the things that the Cloudflare people really made a big deal of when they were discussing this was how their zero trust systems really prevented this from being, quite frankly, catastrophic. The number of access points they had going into this was sufficient for an attacker in a company that was less segmented to run amok. And that's, if you're going to screw up, not necessarily saying they did, if you're going to be negligent for something, let it be for accidentally allowing someone into a small area over which minimal and measured damage can be done, rather than it being that you forgot to segment your systems and anyone who manages to get in has your entire business. Definitely important lessons to learn. Well, I wanted to talk some about nation-state attackers, but I think we're going to have to save that for another episode because there's definitely some questions that I've got that I'd like to put to you, Ryan, about what it means for these businesses who, people who work in these businesses who are potentially subjected to these attacks, but do not have time for that on this episode. I do want to thank everybody for listening to this. I want to assure you that once again, I have not scripted this and who really knows what could come out of my mouth uh, at this point in time. Bearing in mind, we are recording this very late. We want to thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we hope you learned something from it. Please share us with any people you believe might find this interesting or people can learn something from this that they really need to learn. It's obvious this is not scripted. Yeah, yeah. If it was, this would be some chain of consciousness scripting that no one wants to deal with. <laughs> do we do want to thank you for joining us. Tune in on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. I do want to plug a couple of our previous episodes that we've talked about nation-state attackers. We've also talked about how ransomware attacks work, where we did actually a lot of this discussion about access and persistence. And go back and listen to our more recent Kaspersky episode, which is probably one of my favorite episodes that we've ever recorded, uh, as it talked at length about how some of these cyber attacks work. You can visit us at fearlessparanoia.com. I'm pretty sure that's all I've got, so I'll, I'll just wrap it up. For Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.